Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to episode 117 of Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast in the universe. This is episode 5 of our looks at the G.I. Joe disavowed era, The Devil's Due Run. Today we are talking about G.I. Joe's issue 10 to 13, The Malfunction Arc. Uh, if you're new to the show, you can find all of the details and previous episodes over on the website, which is talkingjoe.co.uk. And now, without further ado, let me introduce my co-hosts. First up, it's the Real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark. Hello, Talking Joe listeners. The thousands of you brought over by the pure force of uh, Tim's magnetism. Um... And next up, we have G.I.J. Jay Cordray. What's up, Jay? Howdy, Joe fans. Ready to get started <laughs> and talk about some G.I. Joe comics. Yeehaw. Cool. So um, what's been going going on? I thought uh, last last week we were talking about Mike Zeck's cool covers. We never we never actually spoke about his Reckonings trade paperback cover. So this is back in the day when, when they were going all out and they were actually doing uh, additional art just for the trade paperback, um, which isn't something that necessarily happens that frequently uh, any, anymore. So a nice image there of uh, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow with uh, Hawk in a kind of crosshairs in, in the background. And uh, I've actually shared the, the process for that cover over on uh, the Instagram and Twitter pages. So Zek created uh, three prelims, and uh, before moving on to the final inked uh, piece. So, yeah, if you're interested in seeing process, go uh, head over to the Talking Joe Instagram page and uh, have a look. Did you guys uh, notice that one? I forgot that it existed until uh, you you brought it up uh, recently. And I, I like it. It's not my favorite uh, Zek image. So, for example, there's uh, there's the sketch where um, Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow are, are each slightly uh, rotated out, and they're looking at each other. And that one has a little more, uh, you know, oomph uh, to it. But 
He said, you know, any any Zach drawing for GI Joe is is mm-hmm. welcome. You know, what I what I don't love about this is uh, is you know Storm Shadow stuff that is, you know isn't related to Zach. Uh, Storm Shadow's <laughs> costume design is overdone. Uh, the color is a little overdone, but it you know at least with no background, there's sort of fewer elements uh, that are competing. Um, I do I do feel like Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow in this their proportions are. There may be like five percent too short, like five percent too wide and stocky. If I if I could open up this image in Photoshop and use the free transform tool, I'd make them a tiny bit taller, a tiny bit um, slimmer. But uh, it's it's pretty ballsy of me to uh, to critique Mike Zek's anatomy. Uh, so uh, I'll just say, uh, good cover, good cover. <laughs> I didn't really get that good of a look at it. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I would say I'm a little underwhelmed. I mean, it's just those two stand in there. Yeah, I feel like I would want a little more action. Mm-hmm. I actually pinged um, Zeke a message during the week as well to ask uh, if the Storm Shadow design was from, from him for those uh, covers. And he said that actually it was uh, Devil's Due design that was handed to him so i'm uh, shocked to hear that i'm being facetious uh yeah so (laughs) not from the uh design board of uh of zek uh that that one um never mind um what else is happening in our world we had uh, the sketchbook specials which have been going on and we dropped uh, the last one whenever it was last this time last week uh on on um youtube um, yeah, everyone seems to be in, enjoying those. So something that uh, we'll keep on with. And, and since doing them as well, some people have been contacting us with uh, interest in sort of sharing their own sketchbook and uh, GI Joe art. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to see the enthusiasm uh, there. Um, Tim, did you drop something this week on a real American book? I did. Um... A Ron Rudat pencil drawing of Psych Out from 1985. This is the final uh, design. It's not. It's not a turnaround. It's not the front side rear view. It's not color. It's, it's not a marker or drawing or a painting. It's it's Rudat's final sort of pencil drawing. It's just Psych Out standing with his uh, feet apart, front view with lots of little detail uh, callouts. Um, and the paper is a little uh, stained yellow, which I like because uh, I think it was pressed up against some other piece of paper that had marker on it for 10 years. And so the the ink jumped or the paper's slightly acidifying. Mm. I don't know if yeah. you can yeah, see yeah, that yeah. in the scan, but. Yeah, I can, I can tell. Yeah, so you can work, make out a sort of a, a shape that it's making. I, I can't tell what that shape would be, but but yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and it's, it's just all a nice reminder uh, that Ron Rudat can really draw. And I know this is embedded in, you know, like Ron Rudat was the primary, was the only G.I. Joe figure designer for the first uh, seven years. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I think I think sometimes I just forget because he's just so synonymous with G.I. Joe. And I, I think of these, the finished products as sort of characters that I know. Um, but to see a drawing of his that I haven't seen before, you know, I'm reminded Oh, I don't. I don't know that I would have come up with. I. I don't. I would not have been able to come up with all those details or 
Mm. Uh, you know, drawing clothing folds is difficult, and Rudat can do it. Yeah, and he's he's got the the detachable speakers. He describes them going on his arm like those miniature satellite dishes. I even forget that those are a thing because the moment I got that toy, I was like, "Yep, not going to be using this." <laughs> I right think there I, with you. I right think there. I I remember using them in my first or second game with the figure, but in photographing my childhood toy to go along with this blog post <laughs> this week. Uh, in pulling the figure out of this little plastic container where each figure has all their accessories, I was surprised to find that at some point since 1987, I had lost those two extra Ooh. clips. It's it's fine. If you know, I'd rather I'd much rather have his pistol or his weird um, lunchbox. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Not a favorite figure of mine with the yeah. the lobot thing around his head and the antenna. Oh yeah, yeah. That's Right, it's Lobot. Right, right. Yeah, uh, I guess I, I have this. I have this phrase for a couple of Cobra fi- uh, characters in Real American Hero, which is that they wandered in from another toy line, <laughs> uh, like Wild Boar. To me, just wandered in from Return of the Jedi. And uh, is it the is it the Bugs? Who drives the maggot? Yeah. Uh huh. Um, yeah, with the, the, the dome. Uh, is it brown with sort of a black visor? Oh, sorry, no, sorry. I'm thinking of the underwater vehicle. Yeah, the secto, the... secto viper. Yeah, the bugs. Bugs oh, just they're, want. They're amazing. Uh, good figure. <laughs> Looks like just wandered in from some other toy line. And yeah, Jay, yeah. now that you mentioned Lobot, uh, yes, psych out. Psych out slightly wandered in from another toy line. He looks like a yeah. Joe. He kind of doesn't look like a Joe. Mm. And, yeah, that uh, was that was one where I kind of wondered what what was going on with that one, but. Uh... I'm happy to hear that that Ron Rudad did it. How how long was he um was he on the brand? He he left after like year four or five, didn't he? Or did he still stay on in some capacity? I think it's the first seven years. Oh, okay. He did. Um, let's see. Kurt Groen uh, showed up in I think it's '85. Um, but like he and um, Pennington initially were doing uh, accessories. And uh, we're working uh, with Rudat. You know, I think he would do a pass and then they might uh, take over. I don't have yeah. all my, my notes in front of me. but And then Rudat did some work later on. Like he, he did drawings for um, that final wave of Star Brigade. I have uh, like the, the Cobra Commander who's, um, who's got the astronaut helmet, who's in blue and black and purple. Yeah, uh, and the, the the Duke, who's on uh, the underpainted Duke, who's green and gray from that same year. Uh, I have photocopies of Rudat ink mm. drawings of those guys. Very good. Interesting. Um, I'm sort of counting forward from 1982, seven years. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighty-eight. Is I think is a is a a year that was more dominated by yeah the likes of Pennington and Co. Because that was like. Uh, let's say shockwave storm shadow uh hit and run muskrat voltar etc i think that was probably the last year that i had every figure or almost every figure i think after that uh it would just be like one or two per per year but um of that year with like you said shockwave storm shadow i think i had most of those ones mm. Yeah. Um, and, and after that, I, I kind of dropped off and would just pick up like, you know, 
the blue major blood with the with the yellow and and mm-hmm. i think there was another Sonic roadblock and a, and a stalker in black that i got after that but i was pretty much done with it by that point and there's Sorry. a lot of characters that i don't even know who really who they are like i was doing this uh recap and of course i know heavy duty because he's been in the movies and you hear about him and stuff but i was like was he a machine gunner i'm like i, I don't know because it's just not a figure that i ever had or had any kind of connection to Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a fact check here. Uh, Kurt Groen showed up at Hasbro in February of 1989, so I think it's Pennington who got there a couple years before that. Um, Jay, I find it fascinating. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, Joe fans are different ages and were into other toys and activities at the time. Some may have been sort of primarily into Joe, and so others were sort of primarily into something else. And I I forget that. Uh, fans might have sort of only been lightly into G.I. Joe at a time when I was completely into it. And (laughs) and I'm still always a little surprised, not in a bad way, when on Facebook, you know, someone posts like, hey, are the Deke episodes any good? I hear I don't like them. And, you know, (laughs) like I I have the DVDs and I had had them all taped on VHS off of TV. And when USA was rerunning them, I was watching them. And when they premiered in syndication in 89, 90, 91, I was watching them. Um, so it's... Yeah, uh, I don't think I've ever seen any of them. Uh, at, uh, a topic for another episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's some good. toy news this week that I know you two want to talk about. Yes. So so uh, behind, behind the... Uh, the curtain peak here, we're recording on a Saturday. It's the day after Hasbro Pulse Live, where they uh, released a bunch of information about the toys from the Snake Eyes movie. Uh, so I think it was five classified figures and a bunch of other other things, uh, including the toys line and... Uh, yeah, lots of uh, role-playing knife play toys for children, which is great. <laughs> Jay? Well, that's kind of a surprise. Here, kids, play with this. Just make it just a nerf. Just make it a nerf knife. Does it have a nubbin on the end of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yesterday, I um, actually I've been off most of the week. That's why I've only done one one break room sketch this whole week. And um, I was here in my studio at home, and I was just uh, I was working on a, on a video for for the show, and. I happened to get on Facebook and I saw uh, Diana Davis had posted a picture of um, of the new figures and uh, uh, I had to run in town to, to get some stuff, but I wanted to hurry up and do a, you know, knock out a quick sketch. So I, I jumped on there and I, I copied out the, uh, the Scarlet and, and, you know, really, really rough posted that online. Um, at, at, at first glance, that's probably the only figure that I would be interested in getting. Um, like I told Mark before the show, I, I did ultimately decide to, to go ahead and order the rest of them um, for a couple reasons. Uh, I find that the classified figures are better once you actually have them in hand and you get to, you know, hold them and, and move them around and look at them. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And the same with the movie. I fully expect to not like the movie, but um, I hope that I do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, finally you just can't find these things in the stores so Mm. if i pre-order it now then i don't have to worry about possibly paying extra for it later down the road on on ebay or something like that but um yeah the snake eyes it looks like a snake eyes with henry golding's head 
So, mm-hmm. you know, you really can't go wrong there, I guess. The Storm Shadow, I didn't look at too too deeply. Like I said, I did study the Scarlet because she's one of my favorite characters. And her, her outfit looks pretty cool. I'm really looking forward to getting that one. The Baroness, not sure where they're going with, with her. I think in a way, and I was thinking about this this morning, somebody uh, called her a, a feminazi, which <laughs> is a, a, a Rush Limbaugh thing. Um, and it's kind of, in a way, it kind of uh, does describe larry's initial impression of of the baroness when he created her she was meant to be a uh, an american student that went overseas and got radicalized in like belgium or somewhere she became in with these uh terrorists so you know really the the typical view that we see of the baroness in the black leather and really super sexy doesn't necessarily jive with larry's original uh depiction or, or or idea of what he had with the character and in a way, I think at least visually, this one probably does have a little, a little closer DNA, I guess, to to what he might have intended as far as the look goes. She looks like somebody that I don't know, you know, reads a lot and and maybe uh, hates everybody. <laughs> so you know, and we'll we'll just see where it goes. I don't know where this story is going to go with uh, you know because Baroness and Scarlet were originally not necessarily part of snake eyes's origin uh there's just you know i I don't know i have a lot of questions about the movie a lot of like i told mark i don't want to say oh it's not my snake eyes uh it's a different take i guess so we'll we'll just see you know what we all think of it when when it gets here and uh i hope that i like it i hope that i like these figures Uh, like i said i did order them all um i really hope that if the movie comes out in july i don't have to wait until december to get the figures Hopefully they bump those up to July as well. So then we'll have uh, more stuff to talk about in Jay Talks Toys. Yeah. And, and I saw a, I saw a comment from uh, Daryl De, De Priest, um, which yep, I found interesting, which was that he said that it confirms, he said something along the lines of, the, you know, this toy release confirms his expectation that, that this Snake Eyes movie is going to be a ninja film and not a military film, which is, yeah, an, an interesting observation that... Uh, you know the genre that we're playing in here it's you know it's going to be a you know ninja kung fu style film it's it's not necessarily the the gi joe military aesthetic quite so much yeah i'm not even sure uh, without looking at it i'm i'm not even sure that the snake eyes figure comes with any guns i think he might just have mm. uh swords and, and knives you're right and and they're cribbing um from the uh the actually the IDW run of uh of comics they're they're calling they're leaning quite heavily into this they're calling Snake Eyes's sword uh morning light so, yeah uh, that's that's interesting that they they're obviously taking some inspiration from uh, the more recent Hammer uh, writings and from what I gather that actually plays a big part in the story. Yeah, it sounds like it, and and the merchandise too. <laughs> yeah, I'm People guessing. Thinking, right, this is just this sword's got a name. Are they going to make a big deal of it? We can make yeah. lots of stuff to sell it to kids. Snap Snake Eyes' face on the side. Brilliant! It's the sword of omens. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I'm almost guessing that Scarlet's role is possibly, uh, you know, like CIA or something. Maybe there's trouble brewing in Japan, and she goes to investigate, and she gets caught up in the middle of this that'd be my guess i mean just from judging from the, the toys and 
and how and maybe you know and a baroness is there in an opposite capacity to, to stir up trouble or maybe she's looking to recruit one or both of snake eyes and storm shadow i don't know i don't think you know it's called snake eyes origins it, it seems like it's a completely different origin yeah just and judging from these things than than the snake eyes that that we saw uh in gi joe a 26 and 27 I guess the phrase "not my snake eyes" isn't completely wrong. Yeah, it's your snake you know, eye still. Your snake eye still exists. So that, yeah, that's yeah. There's okay. no. There's you know. I'm, I'm, I would never be the guy that says, "Oh, that's not." You know, you can't watch that. Blah blah. blah. Watch it, man. Love it. You know, it's it's a great take. Hopefully, it's a great take on a great character. Yeah, hopefully and, um, it's good. We enjoy you know, it. I want to like it. I've already plunked down money for the toys, so I'm I'm hoping that uh, you know, like Tim said, I'm I'm voting with my dollars. And if it's a success, then then you know maybe we'll get more of the GI Joe film that that perhaps some of us would be keener to see. But uh, <laughs> we shall see. Well, Let's, and I uh, wonder how the uh, you know if the Lady J series ties into this at all. We've kind of mm, seen different things that say yeah. that it might somehow. So that's yeah. a, that, you know that's another thing to be curious about. We're gonna talk about coming from Devil's Jew. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, oh. Uh, Tim is jumping at the bit, ready to tell us how much <laughs> he loved, loved, loved these issues. He seemed um, really excited about it, didn't he? He did. I just got this vibe, <laughs> this vibe of positivity emanating yeah, I can feel uh, across the waves. Uh, so today we are talking Devil's Due issues 10 to 13. Uh, the creative team story, Josh Blaylock, pencils, Jamal Igel, Kevin Sharp and Mike Miller, inks, Clayton Brown, Rick Ketchum, John Larter, Colors, hi-fi, color design, Let- letters, dreamer designs, edits, Scott Whirl, and graphic design from Mike Norton. Let's before we d- dip into the delicious in- interiors, let's uh, let's have a look at the covers. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. So we've got uh, issue one, issue ten, uh, Zorona. Um, with uh, with Steve Kurth still hanging around on the book, it might be the last we see see of him for for some time. But uh, this cover is, I think, the last remnant of his uh, fingerprint on the book. Uh, Zorana in color with a green Zartan looming in the background like uh, a Mufasa. So um, I appreciate that the background is knocked out in in one color or. <laughs> two or th- two or three versions of green. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Kurth, this is a good drawing. Uh, this drawing doesn't it doesn't wow me or excite me. I think in general, because GI Joe is an action comic, GI Joe covers should have action. And this is you know this is one of my comments on a lot of the uh, early IDW covers too. Generally, I'm not interested in a character just standing there, even if it's a very cool drawing. You know, like we were talking about Mike Zek earlier, and and I think G.I. Joe covers should be kinetic because those covers that we remember from all the TV commercials are so kinetic. So uh, 
or or if you're going to have a cover where a G.I. Joe character or a Cobra character is just standing there, um, I don't think you should have uh, in a four issue arc, three of the covers perform that function. But, you know, in 2002, uh, Marvel institutes this um, new policy, uh, which is sort of typified by uh, all the Mark Bagley, like Richard Isenove covers on Ultimate Spider-Man, which is um, covers have to be readable from a distance. Uh, so covers should just have one bold image of a character. And you know, even for Uncanny X-Men, it's like it's a team book, each cover is just gonna have one character. And for a while, all those Marvel covers for all their books were were really bold and they really popped. Um, but you know, mm. this cover, you know, like the, it's the return of Zartan's sister, Zarana. Like, okay, I mean, every issue, <laughs> every issue of the Devil's Due book has brought someone back in like a cool reveal uh, or like a, a surprise move, and um, uh, you know, she like hasn't that, been missing. <laughs> yeah, I don't. You know, it's 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 fine. It just doesn't do anything for me. Uh, and then uh, continuing that theme, we've got we've we've got. Uh, two covers of standing and posing. The first of those is is eleven, where we've got a lineup of Dreadnoughts, Zartan, Buzzer, Torch, Ripper, Monkey Wrench, Zanya, and flanked by a couple of troopers. Uh, a another uh, posing one of Firefly on thirteen, so sort of Firefly uh, solo in a spotlight, and then one more kinetic action sequence of a bat wrestling with uh, Spirit, Roblox, and Lady J. So uh, to Joe Benitez pencils these three covers. Yes. I like the Dreadnought one uh, because it's it's fun to see these characters in their original costumes. Um, but the cover doesn't quite make sense to me because um, I was found, like, I, I don't think that Dreadnoughts work well with Cobra. So even though this is sort of like a portrait, it's like the photographer is like, okay, everyone get in a little closer, get in a little closer. Like this, <laughs> this scene doesn't exist. I understand that. I don't see two Cobra soldiers or two Cobra officers doing anything sort of with some, it's like th those other two characters should have just been dreadnoughts or they shouldn't be in the image. And then the dreadnoughts can be spread out a little bit differently. Yeah, I mean, um, they could have fit in Thrasher and Road Pig there really. Right. They wanted two extra characters. Yeah, um, yeah. There's definitely more dreadnoughts they could have used. Also, the uh, I don't like the coloring on any of these covers, uh, and here's why for number eleven. Like, are these two Cobra soldiers wearing? Are their costumes made out of satin? They're so shiny. It's so dumb, and the background, like every square and rectangle that could be a light, like a light in the ceiling or some yep. glowing computer button, is not only colored as a light it's colored as glowing right and then 12 um uh, I, I like i like the idea of this cover for 12 but all four characters are overlapping and bunching in a way that feels mm, cramped and then uh 12 um uh firefly is overdrawn there's too much noodling detail on his uh in his camo his backpack uh the little like uh bits of hatching and cross hatching and then on top of that it's colored really aggressively so if i'm looking at his elbow where he's got like an elbow pad yeah. like his his elbow his arm just disappears into his body yeah 
That's exactly right. Um, and then, um, you know, it's again, it's it's like, oh, cool, it's his original costume because I don't love the redesign inside the story. No. Um, and again, I do think you're allowed to have occasionally just a cool guy standing in a cool guy pose. Uh, I I think I'd prefer it be in front of some deep background rather than like a brick wall that's you know five inches behind him because there's no depth there. Um, but. Uh, you know, it's exciting that Joe Benitez uh, drew these covers because at the time, I think he was doing work for Top Cow. Um, correct. Uh, someone might correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, he's in 2002, 2003. Probably was. Okay. Um, uh, I, I can't remember what book, and if not Top Cow, I can't quite remember where he he was. But um, you know that that like Mark Silvestri flavor, right? That yeah. Michael Turner flavor, and. Uh, it's exciting that a like a hot image guy is doing uh, GI Joe covers. This sort of this just looks ahead to uh, GI Joe Origins. Is it twenty one? The like later yep. silent issue with Snake Eyes. I think it might that... have actually been nineteen or something. Nineteen. Okay, like, right. Sorry. Like that. Right. I looked it's, it up it's... the other the other day because it would you'd expect it to be twenty one, but it wasn't. <laughs> right, and I I appreciate it's not twenty one because it's much easier to Google. Um, you don't get hits for the other thing. Um, so Benitez <laughs> like. Uh, 15 years later draws an issue one issue of G.I. Joe that's a silent issue with Snake Eyes that that Hama not only wrote but did the breakdowns for which doesn't get credit thank you Um, so uh, you know cover is okay Jay yeah I wonder what the what the process in the background was for for having Firefly appear in his version one rather than the the redesign maybe he did it on spec and and they just liked the the image or maybe he just wanted to to do the original. Sorry, sorry, Jade. Um, I know. You, you continue. Who knows? Um, <laughs> all right, I'll try to go through these really quickly. Um, number ten, the return of Zorana. It's interesting to me, uh, artists to see artists different takes on Zorana. You guys know I did one uh, this week, and and I kind of had a you know my own version number. Kurtz is actually very similar to mine. You know, try to make her a little more attractive. I've seen some other ones this week. Larry did a sketch uh, of her. Um, for somebody at a con and they shared it and I mean she was just ugly but I mean that's the way that I think that a lot of uh, a lot of times she's portrayed to be that way and I've seen some custom figures that while they're great figures they're great figures of an ugly woman and you know you kind of think well what is she supposed to be is she supposed to be really attractive is she supposed to be this kind of just rough you know woman that you'd want to stay away from Uh, there's that uh, Chris did a great job on the motorcycle. Zartan in the background looks all right. The curious thing uh, for me about this number 10 cover was at the very top, it says nominated for best ongoing series by Wizard Magazine. <laughs> I had to wonder if there were any other ongoing series uh, published that year, uh, if this was nominated for the best ongoing series. But anyway, that's my my little dig. So I'll leave that alone. And then um, so that was let's see which one that was number Ten, uh, the one with the dreadnoughts. That's a good one. I think Tim pretty well, pretty much covered it. There's no reason to have the Cobra Troopers on there. I love Monkey Wrench on the front of it. Monkey Wrench was always one of my favorites. I thought he was a great figure, and he looks really cool in this uh, in this cover. I love his gun. The dreadnoughts, yeah, they all look great. Really, really don't have too many complaints. Other than like Tim said, it's it's probably just a little overcolored. I do kind of like how um, and Benitez does it in this in this cover and they also do it on the inside you see 
every time they show Ripper, he's basically just like hair with glasses. I mean, his his beard and mustache have just like completely taken over, which is hilarious to me. But uh, as opposed to Buzzer, I don't like how they draw him on the inside at all. But these ones are very accurate to the to the original. So that's pretty cool. Um, number 12, we've got Roadblock, Scarlet and Snake Eyes, or I mean Spirit uh, fighting a bat. And uh, that's a pretty cool one. Uh, you know, like like Tim said, we, we, you know, this is an action packed arc. The whole thing is just one great big long chase scene. So there's really no reason why every cover shouldn't feature some element of that chase. And finally, on this one, we do get that. So that that kind of fulfills that role. It's a it's a pretty good one. You know, you, you, I could complain about their costumes uh, and I'm sure we've probably done that enough. But, um, you know, compared to some of the other ones that we've seen, that one's pretty cool. Uh, the Firefly one from number 13. I think that's pretty good. Uh, I, I do agree with what Tim said. There's a lot of unnecessary uh, cross hatching and, and stuff. And, and I hadn't really thought about it until he pointed it out that that elbow does really get lost uh, in the rest of the drawing. But it's nice to see Firefly in his original costume. Um, yeah, I think without a lot of the line work, if this had just been most of this had been left to the colorist, I think it would have worked a lot better. But uh, it's good. I mean, overall, they're all pretty decent covers. Even Kurt's cover for for number 10, I think, was not, you know, I wouldn't give him any, any any grief about it. The motorcycle, he did a really nice job on the motorcycle. Motorcycles are hard to draw. There's a lot of detail. And if you're not familiar with how they work, uh, especially, it's it's a, a complicated machine to try to get right and look right. Yeah, harder than the brick wall. Yeah, for sure. I'll I'll add one tiny thing which I forgot to say. Something I like about the cover to eleven with the dreadnoughts is that Benitez draws Buzzer as skinnier, not as bulked up as the other three male dreadnoughts. And I appreciate when artists um, draw different body types. Yeah, and it's fair if every character in all of GI Joe is in shape and really muscular. Um, but you know, some of the, one of the dreadnoughts might have a different personality, and while you know, Monkey Wrench is is doing reps on the bench with you know, like a barbell, maybe you know, Buzzer's like, I don't, I don't do that exercise stuff. Well, Buzzer's the college educated one. He's probably you know reading right. Tolstoy somewhere in a, in a corner. <laughs> right. <laughs> He's not going to be as bulky as the other ones. I love Toy Tolstoy. My favorite's uh, Buzz Lightyear. Oh, um, you got to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> okay rounding out these covers with there's also a trade paperback uh which has got a, a bat on the the front cover and it's kind of like a uh, half and half cross section sort of showing on underneath it's it's yeah it, it's interesting that they they go for these different uh, trade paperback uh, covers but but nothing too too exciting particularly for such an action-packed arc uh, we do have David Michael Beck on the back covers uh, again, which is uh, nice to see that uh, that Devils Do are making that investment in the in the book with the painted art. So we've got Gung Ho, Zartan, Mindbender, and an upside down Firefly. Um, I don't think necessarily any of these are massively iconic images in of themselves, but uh, I think the the Firefly images probably the most satisfying out of uh, the four just from the perspective of it's doing something quite different and, and having him dangling upside down there 
as as well as mirroring the uh, the firefly on the front of the the cover. I'll just say two quick things and then pass it to Jay. I love the mood of the Zartan piece. It's creepy. There's menace. And the Dr. Mindbender piece, I appreciate the weird fisheye lens and that (laughs) it's much more of a portrait and less of a full body pose. But this one compositionally to me looks like uh, the character was painted, drawn and painted first, and then the background was figured out around the character, uh, which which feels like it's sort of not integrated or there's some arbitrary decisions. Um, but I like the wacky colors, Jay. Um, I can't say I'm a fan of that Mindbender cover at all. It just, uh, I mean, I kind of see where he might be going for you know, Mindbender, obviously it's in the name. He plays with people's minds. So maybe, you know, he's got someone tied up in the brainwave scanner or on an operating table and they're drugged with something. And, you know, they see this dude and he's all out of perspective. And yeah. I mean, it, it works if you think of it that way. I'm just, I don't know. I, I'm not a big fan of the, the, the shading and the color on his face. His mouth is kind of distorted. It's... um not my favorite. The Zartan one is kind of cool. I think there's almost too much yellow in that one. Um, I just, I mean, I mean, the thing about Zartan, is it goes back to his design. I don't like the black shirt, uh, you know, that covers up everything. The only thing that we see of Zartan is his, his nose and his mouth, which, you know, there's storyline reasons for that. But that problem is resolved in this issue. So I don't see why they even bothered doing it. Uh, they should have just left the original design and that could have saved him some story space and, and you know, they could have just not done this. Um, let's see, the gung-ho one. That one's all right. His vest looks a little flat. That is gung-ho, right? Yeah, I see the... the yeah, I don't yeah, know. You can't mistake that tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the more I look at the more I could find things to pick apart about it, so I don't want to look at it too much. Uh, the Firefly one probably is the best one, like Mark said. It, it does uh, give you a really good shot of Firefly. I mean, he's he's descending upside down to, looks like, plant a bomb or something. You know, the, the figure work is probably the strongest on this one. Yeah, I, this one's probably the best of the uh, best of the four, I would say. Well, between this and the Zartan, I, for me, the Zartan just has a problem with, with having the shirt. But the, the Firefly one is really strong. I like how... He's got the ropes, you know, that are going around his leg and, and, you know, through his legs. And he's got them in his hand and in that one hand that's holding it, that his index finger is out. Uh, this, this one would have been a hard one to, to work out compositionally. So kudos to Beck for that. Very good. Now let's get on into the insides. And the best place to start is with a plot breakdown. Joe's attempt to apprehend Zorana during a dead drop inside an international airport. Zorana escapes with the help of the Crimson Twins, Tomax and Zaymont. General Hawk discovers that one of the jugglers, General Winter, Winters, is in league with Cobra and that another juggler, Congressman Cartwright, has evidence of the General dealing Destro as well. Zorana brings the product of the dead drop to Dr. Mindbender, the final component needed to create an updated Super Battle Android Trooper. However, once activated, the new bat goes haywire and escapes into the streets of Chicago wreaking havoc and leaving a path of destruction behind it. General Hawk confronts Winters and tells him he'll be working for him now. His first order is to approve funding for a new pit and more Joes. 
Heavy Duty confronts the Super Bat in Chicago, but is seriously wounded in the conflict. The Bat retreats to the sewers for repairs as Heavy Duty is surrounded by the Dreadnoughts. Heavy Duty is rescued by more Joes and they follow the Bat into the sewer. General Winters makes a frantic call to an unknown operative and tells him it's time to tie up loose ends. The Joes, the Dreadnoughts, and a League of Vipers are almost defeated by the Bat until Firefly arrives and reveals he was behind its awakening and subsequent rampage. Firefly takes the Bat with him to his mysterious client. In Washington, D.C., Congressman Cartwright tells General Hawk he will receive the requested funding for a new pit and more Joes. And as Hawk leaves, Cartwright's office explodes. Kablooey. Okay, where to start? Um, just continuing in on from uh, the last episode, I guess, Tim, you said how much you were looking forward to seeing Jamal Igle tackle a whole issue on his own. Did he deliver with the uh, first of these four? Yeah, the art in the first issue is clear and appealing, exciting and dramatic. Eigel continues his wonderful work with uh, facial expressions. Uh, the uh, uh, sneak peek, the uh, the undercover Joe agent with the green hair. I mean, he's Eigel's drawing different facial types and. Uh, the scene with um, Damon and Firewall training with uh, Beachhead, they've got a great, great great range of expressions. I get a little bit of a Kevin McGuire vibe who draws the best facial expressions in all of comics, uh, all of American comics. Uh, you know, where the art doesn't work for me is uh, the coloring, um, but that's that's the whole arc. Um, yeah, Eigel does a great job. I wish I wish he would draw more G.I. Joe then or now. I get the Kev- I get the Kevin Maguire uh, reference, and uh, just a fun fact: if you've never encountered him at a, a convention, when he's doing convention sketches, he'll say, uh, "Pick a character and an expression or an emotion," and uh, and then ah, sort of just portray cool. that. So so they're always sort of uh, yeah emoting in in some some form. So it's not just a typical superheroic um, expression on a on a character, which. Um, you know, can get a bit samey. So yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, way of uh, approaching it. Um, and yeah, as we were talking about uh, Sneak Peek version two being introduced in this issue, I thought that was interesting in in, in terms of where they approached it and um, somewhat mishandled it because there was a there was a scene where where um, I think it's Duke is talking about him being on this this mission. And uh, someone gives a somewhat flippant, offhand re- remark. It's, I think, either Scarlet. Scarlet. Or, yeah. She says the Periscope guy? The Periscope guy? Yeah, because this is, you know, he's he's named, this is the guy that they're talking about, the Periscope guy, is the guy that died in in that, um, is it Trucial Abysmia? Uh, you know, they, they devoted an entire issue to, to that particular kind of, um, you know, you know plot point and, and building up to it and it you know being one of the most emotional elements of the entire you know original marvel run so to be you know so flippant um you know yeah, probably right. a, a little bit of a, a misstep and they actually call that out in the uh the letter page that uh they oh, a number good. of people you know did actually write in to say you know i don't think you handled that that particular point well to their credit, Devils do, in responding to that letter, apologizes. 
yeah i think i think you don't have to think about it too too hard to to recognize that yeah that probably wasn't the best way of doing it the but a, a similar scene happens in i think it's the third chapter uh sorry i have all four comics in front of me and sometimes it's just faster to guess rather than flip through but um quite all right roadblock meets heavy duty Ugh. and uh and he says that's the correct response jay <laughs> yeah he says, i was gonna you, say something about that he says who are you supposed to be my replacement and that dialogue rings false in so many ways like first of all it's like no the, the team has always been getting new recruits there have always been redundancies and either some of the older Joes get promoted to desk jobs or they retire or we just don't see them, right? They're just sort of off panel doing something else at the pit on a mission. Um, you know, there there aren't any arguments. There aren't any longstanding arguments between any of the Joes, right? Like this is like Star Trek The Next Generation. This isn't Star Trek Deep Space Nine where you have permanent disagreements between like cast characters. But um, there's no reason why if a reinforcement or a new recruit joins your team you'd make some confused or snide reference or joke that is only for the audience's benefit because like yes i'm sure a lot of fans when they saw heavy duty when that action figure shows up or that character shows up on the show around uh, 91 uh they said this guy's like roadblock he's another roadblock right but like you know, I mean, the, the the white guy who was a laser trooper got replaced by another white guy right. with a laser with a laser who's a laser trooper. There's no scene where Flash is like, "Well, you're supposed yeah. to be sci-fi, my replacement." Like that's terrible. Yeah. Um, and I I agree. I almost feel like that's what the line was meant to be. Like Roadblock's not saying, "Who are you, the new machine gunner?" He's saying, "Who are you, the new big black guy?" I'm like, right. Come on. I, okay. That was, if that was if cheap. You, if you had to do this joke, and I don't think you should, no. then you'd introduce Double Blast, who's the who's a, a new version of the of an older Roadblock action figure at a time when Hasbro didn't have the name Roadblock, and it's clearly Roadblock, and they gave him a name that was sort of as close as they could come up with. And I don't know the exact year, but that's right around here. It's uh, 2002 or three, I think. And... So, you know, you could do a dumb joke where Roadblock's looking at himself and they're like, this is Double Blast. And Roadblock is winking to us, the reader, because we know that they're really the same character. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, this thing like in the first X-Men movie where they're flying to Ellis Island and they're in their costumes and Wolverine's tugging at his collar and Cyclops says, you know, because they're wearing black leather. He says, what do you expect? Yellow spandex? Cyclops, don't piss on your fans. Yes, I've been reading X-Men comics my whole life. I expect yellow spandex. We can decide that yellow spandex doesn't work in these movies, but don't make fun of me for liking the source material, right? Like if you're gonna make it more realistic, do it nicely or subtly, right? So uh, the scene with Roadblock and Heavy Duty, ugh. <laughs> yeah, it was it was groan inducing for sure. And and again, it's like it's one panel and it sort of ruins the whole issue. So it's a big panel. If this feels like disproportionate, like why are you guys complaining about one line of dialogue? It's because it's that bad. <laughs> and, so, and it's I guess it's a re, it's a reoccurring theme of a kind of tongue in cheekness playfulness, which sometimes just takes you a little bit out of it. That falls that, flat. 
yeah the, the maybe sometimes it works better than than others so so maybe we've got beachhead training the it crowd there and he goes pathetic which is a nice little nod to to his famous scene from gi joe the movie and maybe zorana is teasing uh tomax and zamot and calls them siegfried and roy um and and maybe that works a little bit better but when you're actually yeah. just when you're just kind of you know ripping into to the franchise itself and, and what you're doing and laughing almost at you know what has come before or, or what even you're doing in the story at that moment it just ugh, come on you know have have you know be playful with it but but don't you know don't don't take uh you know don't undermine what you're doing essentially one of one of the uh references mark you just referred to uh, is Beachhead echoing the animated movie. And there are two more moments like this where this comic echoes the cartoon. One where Zorana wants to give Mainframe a chance because there's a 1986 episode called Computer Compilations where they have a relationship and it's great. And uh, and then uh, Jinx, oh, wow. has a, Jinx has a scene. It's And it's, it's subtly done. Um, uh, and then unfortunately, there's a Deke episode a couple years later where Zorana has feelings for another Joe, but Mainframe's not a character anymore, so it's a big Ben. And so it's like, no, I want this to continue from the old... Anyway. Um, uh, and then secondly, in this Devil's Do run, because we're talking about comics and not cartoons, uh, Jinx makes a reference to her bad luck, uh, which, sorry, I don't have Jinx's file card in front of me, but is, is that only in the animated movie or is that is that from the toy... So, you know, I don't I don't love the connections to the animated series, um, but I don't it, it makes sense. You know, that's a touched point for a lot of people. And in the case of something like extensive enterprises, uh, it, you know, it's good material. Why not use it? It also helps me sort of separate. It's like, yes, this continues the Marvel continuity, but it's its own thing. Yeah. yeah. The bad luck thing was only the movie it wasn't the, the file card. Just double yeah, checking. I don't remember that. that ever being referenced in the original series either. Yeah, but to, to be fair, in the original series, Jinx only appeared in a quite a small handful of places, though. So she appeared really... enough. <laughs> You're saying she appeared twice and that's enough. <laughs> that's enough. <laughs> so uh, should we talk like big picture about yeah, the story? Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I, so I usually start. I want to start with Jay because um, I, I guess... Uh, yeah, because this is this is all new for you. You didn't read this at the time. Does does the arc work for you? And and what about it is good, and what about it isn't? Well, like I said when I was talking about the covers, um, it is a, a pretty straightforward uh, chase scene. Does it work? Yeah, I think it did. I don't know. I mean, there were there were little things that got in the way of the bigger overall uh, picture and enjoyment of it. Uh, I think that Blaylock. Uh, does is doing a pretty good job plotting these out. Um, this probably could have been condensed a little bit. Uh, you know, I always go back to like GI Joe number one and how much story was packed into one issue. I could easily see this being one issue during Larry's run. But you know, and when I was doing the plot, I was breaking breaking the plot down. Okay, the Joes intercept Zorana. Zorana gets something to Doctor Mindbender. It's part for a new bat. Bat goes crazy, wreaks havoc. Joes come in. Cobra comes in. Dreadnoughts come in, great big, you know, cluster in the middle of the city. Uh, Firefly comes in. There was a lot of confusion for me around Firefly. 
and like who he was working for and what was going on there. And and there were a couple panels too that I specifically want to ask you guys if you understood what was going on. Go for it. I don't know. I've, I've, uh, again, it it could have worked a lot better. There's like I said, there's little things that 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 keep the enjoyment of the overall from being a lot a lot higher. And I think to to your your point, um, there's there's a letter that it's actually published in one of the letter pages here, where they re- reference that. Um, you know, it's a bit clear that Devil's Due here, the approach they're taking is is trying to write to the trade. So effectively, they're going to decide on, okay, this is going to be a four issue arc. This is broadly what's going to cover. Uh, and then we can collect it as a nice four parter, which is the standard for trade paperback collection in, in this era. And probably we've got three issues worth of content here, which is being drawn out. Yeah into into four four issues that that just the bat chase or even two sequence yeah it, it you know larry certainly wouldn't would probably only have taken two over two over these so at most um that that yeah the the bat chase you know in the sewers back again the dread you know this back and forth of the dreadnoughts it just it seems a little bit um repetitive um well and, and one and thing too that kind of um makes it seem like it doesn't need to be as long is the fact that when you get into the later issues of this arc, there's so many big panels. Like we talked about the early, like the the reinstated arc, how there were a lot of little panels. They've almost gone the opposite direction. Who is it that draws, that draws the, the last three or four issues? Uh, Kevin, Kevin Sharp. Sharp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He uses a lot of, like, you know, you might have four or five or six, which is, you know, that's your your standard grid, but he's kind of changed it. And uh, the camera, a lot of times, what I refer to as the camera is real close on the characters. you got a lot of really close headshots. Um, I just, his art for me didn't really work. I mean, it wasn't bad. He's, he's definitely, you know, got, he's a talented artist, but I don't think he's that great of a storyteller, at least when, you know, when this came out. And I think that it's just, uh, yeah, there's a lot of problems with it. But, but like I said, I do, I do credit Blaylock again for uh, his ability to kind of make a good chase scene. And I think that his plotting in some respects is really good. Um, but then maybe when it gets to the scripting stage and, and, the, and the, the pencils, you know, it kind of makes for a head scratcher sometimes but i can see what he's what he's trying to do like with the jugglers and and that stuff the uh, like i said all the firefly stuff was unclear and especially later when firefly shows up and zartan's like you're behind this and i was like how do you get that firefly was behind this you know i didn't see him at all during the issues or the part where the the bad escaped um i don't know what he had to do with any of that you know, and Firefly kept talking about his mysterious client. And I'm like, why do we have to have like all these different factions and stuff all over again? And the stuff with I don't know, Cartwright and the other one. I mean, right in the plot bar- breakdown, I had to go back through a lot of that stuff a couple of times. And I'm still not <laughs> sure that I got it right. Tim jumps in there with the evil laugh. Let's hear it, Professor.
kick on the nitpicker Timmy Finn Analytical prankster Timmy Finn Picking holes in your colouring Timmy Finn Still loved you, Joe Timmy Finn No, no, he won't lie Yes, he testified Anyone can see there's some criticism Anything that he don't know Ain't a thing that's worth to know Pull him back and let him go Criticism Here come the nitpicker Timmy Finn Analytical prankster Timmy Finn Picking holes in your colouring Timmy Finn Still love your joke Timmy Finn No, 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 that's, that's a la- that's a laugh of relief Because the, fi- the final two pa- the final two pages, I was confused Yeah And you know, I feel bad. Sometimes I'm reading a comic by a really smart writer and I can't follow it. And I think, am I not smart enough to follow this? Or are my I friends think... understanding this? Yeah. Uh, or, some, you know, sometimes I see a, a movie and like, you know, it's like all the bad guys kind of look alike. It's like all one family or like uh, they've all it's like they're all like kind of wearing it's like, I don't know, like a, a crime movie, you know, and it's like just a whole bunch yeah. of like white guys with like black suits it's like is the movie not like differentiating these like some of them should have goatees and some of them should have hats and everyone's name should be very clearly said aloud is it me am i not smart enough or is the movie not giving me enough information um so the final two pages i i couldn't follow it's like i understand what's about to happen like clearly something's gonna blow up and someone's gonna die but i don't know if it's the like this government guy that government guy fireflies uh patron is this a misdirect and firefly's patron is really just firefly um and uh, yeah and is it firefly in the car right okay i'm so like the, where where is general winters he's okay yes so you know you, you somebody makes it. he makes a call to somebody there's somebody in the car i'm like looking at this whole thing i'm thinking where is winters at and who is in the car and where is the car it seems like the car is parked outside of whatever building cartwright and hawker in we don't get winter's location we only see him in one panel we don't know if the guy in the car is firefly i assume that it is um jay you have so hit the nail on the head this is <laughs> no, no no i'm i'm i feel really good because when i read comics and i grumble to my friends or my manager or i blog about uh, you know, storytelling in uh, G.I. Joe 250 or Snake Eyes Dead Game number one. Um, dra- drawing drawing comics, it is a very specialized skill. You, you, It's not just being able to draw, like draw people and clothing and guns and airplanes and horses and trees. Right. Storytelling matters. Storytelling. And, um, and, and like the like the visual continuity who is who and where are they mm-hmm. and the word that i think the two words that i think of over and over is establishing and reestablishing where yeah. is this character or where is this character in it's like oh so and so's in the room in front of three other people and if you okay for example um the third to last page of the arc so the third to last page of the final issue um they're all on a uh, they're all on the street and or a rooftop i can't quite tell and a helicopter shows up and firefly uh says uh oh that's my ride okay so there's a panel of a helicopter landing whoop 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 sound effect and there's a little outline of a person standing in front of it they're not quite a silhouette because they're not blacked in they're colored sort of yeah but only one 
Exactly. There's only one character who's waiting for the helicopter to land. And then in the next panel, Firefly is sort of putting his arm up on like a robot arm that we see from behind because we're inside the helicopter. It's a reverse angle. We're looking at the yeah. helicopter and there's a robot person gun something. And, it, and I thought, oh, is this like a helicopter with a gun on the side and there's a gunner in the window who's yeah. like the like uh, machine gunner for this. And then I, in the story, it's like, uh, oh, Firefly's taking possession of the bat, the robot, and the robot is getting on the helicopter first. But the robot, the bat wasn't in the previous panel when we yeah. would definitely see anyone standing next to Firefly. And certainly the bat wasn't in the panel before that, which is just a head and shoulders close up on Firefly. And then I go to the previous page. The bat's not even on that page. And the previous page, correct, is uh, Firefly, Mindbender, and some Dreadnoughts, uh, and also some Joes talking. We don't see the bat. And then on the previous page, the bat is uh, five or ten feet away from the from Firefly. Mm-hmm. So drawing comics, right? Like, if you want to get good at storytelling, like, this is an exercise I give to my students. Uh, pick a scene from a really good movie, like... I mean, I don't mean story. I mean visual storytelling, like an Orson Welles movie or an M. Night Shyamalan movie or uh, an Akira Kurosawa movie or like anything that like Disney or Pixar or uh, Blue Sky, right, have animated in the last 20 years. Pick a scene, pause every shot and draw it. But I don't mean detail. I mean, like, with a Sharpie. Like, draw it in, like, 30 seconds. And retroactively... Almost story- storyboard it. Retroactively storyboard the scene. And yeah. if there's a scene where the camera doesn't move and some characters do, you have to, like, draw another rectangle and use arrows and, like, draw where the people move. And if there's a camera move, you have to draw, like, an oddly shaped panel that's, like, a tall rectangle or a wide rectangle to account for the extra background that you're going to see. Like... I don't mean choreography like fight choreography, like action choreography, like right. kicking and jumping. I just mean where people are standing and yep. not forgetting them. So absolutely, that second to last page, someone's on the phone. It's someone with black hair and a red car. Uh, they've got a glove and they're holding a car phone or a cell phone. And I can't tell if that's Firefly or not. Yeah, I mean, the assumption is... Oh, I guess it is. Because uh, all right, so it's about it's about time. Yeah, he's just, Firefly. It's about time. Okay, right. Okay, so the dialogue the dialogue tells you for sure. So I apologize. That's a little more. That's a little less unclear than I thought. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna step to a larger. Uh, now that I've so storytelling is one thing. In terms of plot, um, interestingly, Blaylock is no longer providing layouts. He's just writing. Mm. There are there are many pages with. Um, more than the standard six panels per page. Um, but the story does breathe a little bit more. There are also a lot of pages with, you know, just two or three or one uh, panels. So the pacing definitely feels different than the first arc and a little bit from the second arc. Um, there, are, there are two things that Blaylock does that I like. Um, there's one or two scenes where he, he just has, uh, over a couple panels, a character just moves from one place to another. Maybe it's actually only in the first uh, issue where Mindbender, uh, over the course of a couple panels, yeah, it's like the one, two, three, fourth to the last page of the first part. Mindbender 
over the course of four panels, he just walks over to the briefcase, opens it, takes out the, the special equipment. And, and he's in his lab and he's, he's like finally back in his like flamboyant Cobra costume. And ah, yes, the final component needed for my masterpiece. I really like this scene because it slows down and it's a little bit of visual storytelling. It's a little bit of physical choreography. Mindbender was there. Now he's here. This prop is important. This prop is important. Um, and then That's Jamal Eichel. Uh, yes. So yes, that might be all Jamal Eichel. The you know the 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 plot or the script may have uh, sort of had this all be one panel, or it may have just been written quote Marvel style, and Eichel divides it into five panels of his own choosing. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, you make up a good point based on how the visual storytelling in the other three issues is not as strong. Yes, a lot of this must be Eichel. And then the other thing that Blaylock does that I like is that he's. Uh, he is reintroducing more characters, uh, like Firefly, who we want to see, and he's he's continuing this thread of Hawk and the Jugglers and the Joes funding. Now, whether those things actually work in the story uh, is a separate uh, issue. My main problem with this arc is that I don't buy it. I don't understand how this bat is indestructible. It gets shot and blown up so many times in the first two parts that and it takes no damage i mean like hey everyone don't forget the bat is a metal robot wearing clothing i don't say that as a joke like the yeah. the design it's 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 a robot it's like a terminator endoskeleton wearing pants and a shirt with its sleeves rolled up in actuality and it's wearing gloves and like they shoot it and they like blow it up and the clothing takes no damage and the head doesn't get dented and like heavy duty, like shoots it twice with his big um, weapon in the head. In the head, and and I feel like a different writer would come up with some dialogue where some of this is explained. It's like I just need like make up make you know adamantium or vibranium, like you know Im- impossibilium, cybertonium, whatever it is, <laughs> auto decepticonium, like Explain- make up a explainium. Thank you. Um, I think that we're led to believe that it can repair itself. However. That shouldn't mean that it can repair its clothing. Right. Now, yeah, and, I think and, that and the, the shark clothing... should have had it take damage as it went further along in the line, and it should have continually looked worse and worse. You're right. And, and the clothing's just a little thing. And, you know, that's... It, but it's if a you big thing. That, okay, right. I, I think it's a little thing that represents a big thing, which is that yeah. the story doesn't come up with a enough of an interesting reason. I don't need, I don't need like, logic or comic book logic. There's not enough. There's not a, an interesting enough reason for this bat to be so impossible to take down, except that it's like I guess this two or three issue story just needs to be four issues because it's going to be a skinny paperback and you you, you need at least four issues for that. Um, and yeah, considering that this thing is like on a rampage, there's an awful lot of talk and very little damage. Yeah, there's not a like, lot of rampage. And there's not there's not a lot of menace or threat. Like, uh, okay, different example. Uh, Nineteen eighty five episode of the TV show GI Joe, uh, the Germ. There's this giant blob that's like moving um, across like upstate New York towards a city, and the Joes have yeah. to stop it. It's escaped from a Cobra lab, and it grows and grows and grows and absorbs everything in its path. I understand the scale is different here because it's a giant blob, not a robot that's six feet tall, but. There's a scene where the Joes are like, 
it's headed toward that city. And like over the shoulder, you see in the distance a city. It's like, oh, that's a populated city. This is going to be bad. And it's cute that Blaylock is including all these references to specific streets in Chicago because uh, Devil's Due was uh, headquartered in Chicago. But it's like this this robot, you know, it's got its like scary claw arm on the final page of the first part when it's threatening Dr. Mindbender. And then it just no longer has this scary claw arm. It's just hands keep opening up to show like 17, I don't know, machine guns. And then it's like chest opens up to show like five machine guns. Like, isn't it gonna run out of ammo? Like a different <laughs> writer who's keeping track of like its armament, uh, both what it can fire and also its armor is going to have dialogue. Like Mindbender should be explaining this. Like, oh no, it's it, it, like, oh, it's the Bat Mark III. Like also I think it should look different from the original Bat. Because it's like, well, the Joes took care of this before. And on the on the cartoon, you just like mow them down with your machine gun. So <laughs> punch them. <laughs> um, the central the central conceit of the story, like out of control bat, um, I don't find it interesting or believable. You know what it just made me think of? You said uh, a different writer would keep track of things like how much ammo it has, um, you know, what its capabilities are. It put me in mind immediately to the recent A-Raw episode that you guys uh, talked about with Law and Order, uh, where he's, you know, has to bandage his, himself up because he's wounded. And you just think, yeah, that's something that most writers, and you guys even talked about it, most writers wouldn't put that scene in there and, and have the explanation that, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, you take damage on the field. You, you gotta, you have to deal with it. And this is, like you said, this is just, I don't know, comic book, movie logic. You know, I can't go to the movies with my dad because there will be a shootout and he'll say, that guy just fired 13 times from a six-shot revolver. I'm like, oh, come on, dad. <laughs> but, I but realized... Also, it takes takes the jeopardy out of the story a little bit. The yeah. fact that I think there was a couple of the Joes got some quite bad damage. There was Heavy Duty got uh, got one to the shoulder and I think uh, Spirit as, as well. But, you know, they just shrug it off and, and continue yeah. continue on. It's like... You know, if if they can have such, you know, a, a, what looks like quite a brutal wound um, and just, you know, continue on just because they're, you know, hard and team players, um, you know, it it take it does seem to take away the sense of jeopardy somewhat from from this. In one panel, it looks like Roadblock got or not Roadblock, Road Pig gets stabbed in the heart. And I was like, holy crap, that's it for Road Pig. Nobody ever says anything about it. Um, so I realized that. Uh, this arc, even though there's serious stuff like uh, an office at the Pentagon or something getting blown up uh, on the final page yeah. and some Joes getting shot and us seeing blood, the treatment of the bat and like throwing all these guys at it, Cobra guys, Dreadnoughts, Joes, um, it, it feels more in line with the cartoon. I don't mean the tone. I mean the sort of uh, the like simplicity of the logic of it. It's like G.I. Joe comics are more complicated than this. Um, the other thing, the other comparison besides say the germ from 1985, uh, I know I know there are strong feelings about the blue ninjas in the in the last five years of real American <laughs> hero comics written by Larry Hama, right? Like say what you will about uh, the blue ninjas. It's like well they're like they're it's like they're unrealistic or they're not interesting or they're too impossible to defeat. But when they show up, 
the stakes are explained and demonstrated. The Joes are like, go for the head. Last time we saw them, if we knocked off their head, they didn't work. Or like, oh, there's like a queen and it's a hive and like they're all being controlled by this other one. Or like, like oh, they've got this weapon, this like lightsaber nunchuck thing and they dropped it and now I have it and I can take out a blue ninja robot. Or like, like, oh no, my gun isn't big enough. Hey, you other Joe with a bigger gun, I need your gun, <laughs> right? Like the, yeah. the, the sort of the, the power levels and the, the like physical logic of it, even though it's like a, an AI ninja, which doesn't exist in, real, in the real world, the stakes and the, the logic of it are explained. And so to Mark's point about the Jeopardy, it's like, I'm worried when like, you know, during artificial intelligence, uh, Destro and Baroness are fighting a bunch of blue ninjas because it's like they're outnumbered and this might not work. And in this story, it's like, wait, you mean to tell me that like five Joes and like all the dreadnoughts and a bunch of alley vipers like can't take out one bat? It's like, no, you haven't adequately described to me how awesome this bat is. What a missed opportunity. It's like, oh, Blaylock, you could have invented like the super bat, right? And actually overkill right there already is a super bat <laughs> so doesn't work sorry <laughs> on the flip side though uh four issues of super bat versus uh five years of blue ninjas uh you know yin and yang <laughs> 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 yeah. uh cool uh was there um was there anything else we wanted to to cover in talking points there was one panel like i said there were a couple of things that i didn't understand um let me see if i can find it i think it's in it was in part two. You get a scene where Hawk goes and talks to General Winters, and then we cut back to uh, Duke and Lady J. The next page has somebody, it looks like Hawk has been shot on the top panel, and he's laying over a desk, and it's like grown. And then we just cut back to the bat, and I'm like, where is this top panel supposed to be? And who is that? I, I, I totally didn't get who that was supposed to be or where that, that was the at? one with um sneak peek version two being shot yeah because because that hair, who that is yeah because his hair is green okay so he's so on the previous the page before where he's been shot he's, oh, okay i see he's on the screen and he's on like a un- undercover calling something. in to yeah. to duke who's in his black suit and then uh and then his communication gets cut off right oh and then there then there's a line that i there's a line of dialogue that i don't think is very good right uh, undercover joe gets cut off and is probably dead and duke says no come in i said come in that's an order <laughs> uh, uh. work phone work <laughs> there's a i want to talk about one panel in issue 11 which is chapter where the word two. balloon is pointing to the wrong person uh no since because you just said it so that can count um it's, uh... <laughs> do you no, know no, what I, i'm talking about i do i wrote it down on my list of things i don't like um yeah. no uh it's page 19 in number 11 yeah it's page 19 so it's it's the second to last page it's the second to last page of uh issue 11 chapter 2 um the color is bad in this entire arc and yeah. this middle panel where heavy duty has been shot and there's a police officer and 
It's like, okay, this is how you don't color comics. Mm. The moon above her is colored like the sun. I don't mean yellow. I mean how bright it is. Every single window mm-hmm. by her <laughs> elbow, over her head, or other elbow, over the yellow and black pattern on heavy duty shoulder every and this happens in every scene every yeah. building no matter what part of chicago everything uh, is glowing like you said about the dead the dreadnoughts cover every 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 room in every building is like the lights are turned on and they're turned on like maximum like they're shooting a movie in there and they've got all these extra lights <laughs> okay and uh and the, my, my problem with this panel is this giant sculpture made out of like dairy butter like cream <laughs> Or margarine, this like very shiny, weird. Like I showed this panel to my wife, and I said, "Look, this cop and this this Joe are in front of this giant butter sculpture," and she laughed because she knows I'm like somehow making fun of it. And she said, "That's not butter. That's like that's like the birth canal in some like on a spaceship in some like alien movie." It's like, like the color, like the color, and and like heavy duty, the color of his. All the all the gradients and the highlights and the shading on his shirt, they're just as busy and organic as this weird butter sculpture that he's in front of. So he kind of, <laughs> even though he's different colors, he kind of disappears into it. Like, like less See, is yeah. more. See, oh that my is odd. That is awful. But I thought what you were going to go for was was um, the uh, the the ridiculous sort of highlights on the cop's badge on their watch on their wrist. And then also on heavy duties, uh, buckle. It's 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 on everything. It's, it's through throughout. Whenever there's any metallic object, they just have this crazy radiant highlight just pinging uh, like that. Oh, no, because uh, no, like I, a Jar Jar Abrams film. I I I, wa- I wasn't going to do the cops uh, <laughs> watch because because uh, um, page eight, panel four of issue ten, the very first chapter of this. Uh, there's a really nondescript panel, uh, nicely drawn by Jamal Eigel, where uh, Mainframe is l- turning and looking back at Hawk, who's leaning over him because they're like at a computer. And every single piece of metal on Hawk, like all of his stars and the buttons on his uh, uniform, they all have highlights. Yeah, like they're glowing, like, like, the like mini lights. What? It, it, it's as if like he's in a photo shoot and there's like a giant, a giant light, like two. Anyway, yeah, Mark and you does, know that's all the colors. Igo didn't put that in there, right? And 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 like one of the things that I don't love about an entire studio getting credit for coloring a book is that you sort of don't know who it is and who's doing what. And clearly, it's a different colorist on some of the pages in the final two mm, chapters yeah. because the like the the nighttime scene gets a lot murkier but still not good. Um, one of the things I liked about like, you know, Wildstorm uh, when they were coloring early Wildstorm books is that uh, smaller in the credits, everyone who was on Wildstorm Productions or Wildstorm Colors or whatever it is, you know, at Jim Lee's studio, they all got named. And some of those people became like well-known, talented solo colorists uh, at, at other publishers later on. So I, I, that's that's it for my oh and uh, uh, in issue twelve uh, mainframe the uh, the I mainframe's name gets said aloud and uh, M A I N the I has serifs and there's a rule in lettering that if the word I is by itself it has serifs in comics and if the word if the letter I 
uh, is part of another word uh, like inside or insidious. Uh, it does not have serifs. Yeah, it's just when we thought it was safe to look at the lettering again. Yeah, <laughs> just when you thought it was safe. Yeah, as I, <laughs> I'm looking at this coloring now as well. And, you know, beyond beyond now looking at every single piece of metal and it having its own sort of light light source attached to it. Um, you know, you, I am noticing there being you know very definite um, coloring differences between between pages and between issues. So that you clearly is different people's hands touching these things. Like on the panel opposite uh, the one we were talking before with the the cheese sculpture, um, that uh, there's a bat <laughs> jumping into the sewer, and you know it's jumping into water. We all know that water's what color? Blue. So let's just make this a giant blue mess that he's uh jumping into of the brightest blue um yeah uh, sewer uh, water is not blue yeah and and in, in you know just flicking forward then to the next issue first page you know the coloring of that um uh, water is a very different color although they're still going for these crazy highlights let's let's stop talking about uh the coloring um <laughs> I'll do uh, one of the things I wanted to mention was some G.I. Joe fashion. Oh, thank you. Armani, Prada, Versace too. Joe's changed their outfits from black to blue. Duke and Hawk, look, but don't gawk. Changing their kit. Whoa, was that legit? Swapping camo jackets, headgear and boots. It's now neon colours and funky space suits. Sci-fi stalker and even Roblox. While Bill, Flint and Mutt gave me a shock. So go take a walk if clothes aren't your passion. Because it's comic book talk and lovely G.I. Joe fashion. So the, the one that I spotlighted was Heavy Duty. So uh, we're talking about Heavy Duty 4 from 2002, being based on the Hasbro toy design that uh, came out the time again. So um, very, uh, you know, Devil's Due making a big effort to try and align the look of some of these characters to, to what is being released in the toy shops. And this um, this particular version of Heavy Duty is much as he he looks in that you know big introductory splash page, but it's um you know fairly ugly toy in terms of the you know the look of those those early GI Joe versus Cobra figures without the O ring type art articulation and and just you know feeling like a diff you know like like a different toy brand and and you know very cheap and and clunky, not entirely satisfying and. I think now that we're past that era, most of uh, the Joe collectors have <laughs> forgotten about it, cho chosen uh, to, to not mention that one uh, ever, ever again. Um, so, so heavy duty. So in a previous episode, I mentioned like, what are the one or two thing attributes of a GI Joe costume design that you need to carry forward to a, a later version, right? It's like, you know, version one of Beachhead, he's got his green, what's it called? What's the thing he puts on his face, his head? Balaclava. Thank you. He's got his green balaclava. So any future version of Beachhead, it needs that. It, mm -hmm. You know, suddenly we see Beachhead and he's just got like a big yellow beard and mustache like rock and roll. I'm going to think, oh, it's rock and roll. Or, like, oh, is that topside? So heavy duty, uh, he shows up in the Marvel comic briefly. He's got he's got a couple episodes of the Deke run, and iconically to me, he's going to have a big gun thing or a big gun mm -hmm. missile thing, and uh, he's going to have a, a mustache and he's going to have a baseball cap maybe backwards, backwards and yeah. you can swap out uh, different you know, shirts or pants and maybe maybe uh, ripped ripped shirts sure sure yeah. right and 
Um, uh, and I know that, you know, like the designers were making a lot of uh, different decisions in 2002, 2003, 2004 at Hasbro. And, you know, some characters weren't weren't consistent. Um, I look at I look at this guy, Heavy Duty, in this arc that we're reading, and it's just freight from G.I. Joe Extreme. No, no facial hair. And he's got uh, like a, a bandana or a skull cap on his head. It's like, oh, that's not heavy duty. Heavy duty is a guy with a baseball cap and a mustache. This is freight. And for those of you who aren't familiar with G.I. Joe Extreme, just take my word for it. This just looks exactly like freight from 1996. And so, Jay, <laughs> Jay, you, Jay you talk about fashion and character design. Well, the heavy duty, um, as he's portrayed in here, is just another one that I would say is boring. Uh, like I said, I, I really don't know that much about heavy duty. It wasn't a figure that I had. Um, but even still, I've seen him in like Belomo's book. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, the baseball cap. Um, I have a vague idea of what the character is supposed to look like. This guy does nothing for me. His outfit is just plain. Um, and, and then the page that you talked about earlier where he's in front of the cheese sculpture <laughs> everything is the same color the only thing that stands out is the uh the the striped bars on his sleeve no no love for me from this for this character for this design whatsoever um real briefly i'm going to say that i still hate jinx's gimp suit um, <laughs> but the one that gets me is there's in the first arc or in the first issue uh, drawn by jamal eigel um, is the page that you talked about with Dr. Mindbender where he's in his lab and he goes over and he opens up the case. Uh, that first panel, you get a, a big wide shot of Dr. Mindbender. And it's so easy to make fun of the original Dr. Mindbender, you know, with the open shirt and the cod piece and the suspenders and the cape. I mean, it's just the jokes write themselves. This one is not that much of an improvement. I'm like, what's wrong with just slacks and loafers you know or <laughs> or something i'm like what what are these boots that he's wearing uh you know and he's got the big shoulder you know the big bulky shoulders under the jacket the big puffy sleeves you know in the first arc he was in like like a suit and he had the fedora and i thought yeah that that looks like a like a creepy kind of you know picture uh picture the guy in um in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the, the creepy guy that got the the medallion burned into his hand. That's almost what that could have been. And and that would have worked perfect for Dr. Mindbender. And then we get to the, the lab in this scene here, and I just have to look at that and say, what in the hell are they thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I don't maybe it's just me. Yeah. I'm in, I'm interested to get Tim's. that outfit doesn't work at all. I'm interested to get Tim's take on this, but this one I think gets a pass from me. It's <laughs> it feels like it's enough in the spirit of Dr. Mindbender. He's got that, you know, that sort of evolution of his monocle into glasses. He's got that kind of Fu Manchu moustache going on, yeah. which is uh, which is different, but but feels, you know, feels in, in keeping. Uh, there's a kind of mad scientist purple coat, which is, you know, very stylized, uh, uh, interesting and, and very different to yeah, his V1, but seems in keeping. But those boots. To, to me, the yeah, I mean, who's going to put those boots on? Well, he had, you know, <laughs> his, his previous costume wasn't exactly credible. It was, you know, top, <laughs> topless, mostly codpiece. Uh, and then <laughs> and that, and that, I you feel know, like we should. Yeah, I feel like we should have a page. 
how they do sometimes where they'll have somebody getting ready and they'll show someone putting lipstick on and, you know, and a belt tightening and all that kind of stuff. I feel like we need a long lingering shot of Dr. Mindbender's foot slowly going in that big, long boot. And it's like, uh, but a lot of, this doesn't do it. A lot of Cobra characters have knee high boots. Yeah. Um, it's true to, to answer, to answer the question. What do I think of this? I agree with Mark. Um, uh, it's it's missing one thing. I don't quite know what it is. I think I need to see. I think I need a V neck. I need to see a little bit more skin to slightly recall his original costume. I think the the three cobra Maybe symbols. Like- Peekaboo holes, uh, just to- <laughs> no, no, no. Mindbender was buff. He obviously likes showing that off. He's not yeah, going to cover it up with a coat. I think, I think the, I think the three cobra symbols on his chest acting as buttons um, doesn't quite work. You know, yeah. one, one is fine, but uh, black and purple, uh, something like a cape. Um, it's in the right direction, and as Mark mm. says, it's in, it's in this. I don't actually like this, but I, I appreciate the effort and. They got enough right. Uh, yeah. Also, Jay, to your point about him wearing a, a suit and a fedora, he is wearing that in the previous page, and that is draped over the chair. Okay, here, yeah, yeah. In the big reveal uh, panel. So um, this is actually a scene that I've always wanted to see. I've always wanted to see this uh, in a Joe comic. Is uh, either in a locker room back at base, or like getting on the helicopter when a mission is over. Um, I've always wanted to see a Joe sort of taking off a later costume and putting on an earlier costume. Cause you know, when the Marvel run was nearing its end, everyone was in it's like roadblocks in his version. Uh, it's not three cause uh, it's version four um, outfit, you know, and Duke's in his like desert storm outfit. And I would love just one, but you know, and then the IDW run starts and we get to reset and they're all just in their original costumes or a sort of modern updating of it. And I would love to see, like just one scene somewhere of like Scarlet like taking off her Ninja Force boots, you know, and like putting on uh, just to nod to the fact that these are clothes. This is clothing, and they can wear them sort of as personal choice. Like my my brother and I talked about this once. Yeah, there's we were- no reason they couldn't kind of interchange them, you know. Yeah, um, but the way that here that you know Mindbender, you know, was wearing his civilian clothes, then he puts on his mad scientist clothes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> is mad scientist close so uh yeah so it, uh this Mark, conversation I, got me wondering whether whether from mindbender's original look he had those sort of uh braces uh silver braces over his uh his costume i wonder whether those were just a necessary um mechanical addition just to support the weight of the codpiece on his uh original outfit <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah he had uh he had uh you know um uh, uh um knee high boots black knee high boots on his uh on his original outfit and purple purple trousers so it, it's it's yeah kind of mirroring that almost that the purple is now being extended to the top and and the the trousers are now black rather than purple when you know when seen when side Mindbender, by side kind of i wonder who designed the original mindbender costume Ron Rudat. That Rudat? yeah and you know when he gets his battle core uh, re-envisioning in 93, I forget. Um, you know, it's like he's got his mustache, he's bald, he's uh, got uh, his monocle, and there's a bunch of purple on him. Mm-hmm. So we hit, you know, four of the five important, you know, he's wearing a full, like, shirt and, and full pants. Um, 
but like you know that that's Mindbender. And this is this is the thing. This is also why in the early IDW comics, like the Chuck Dixon ones that were in the new IDW continuity, when all the Joes, you know, like Roadblock and Grunt and, and Zap, when they're just in like green, modern military clothing, um, I can't tell who's who. Yeah. And like even that episode, uh, 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 growing hairs and uh, great growing pains and gray hairs, gray hairs and growing pains from '86, where the Joes go to a fitness club and some of them get aged up and some of them get aged down, and they're just wearing like workout clothing. And as a kid, I couldn't tell who was who. Like, like there's just some guy wearing like blue sweatpants and like a gray sweatshirt, and then I hear Flint's voice come out of his face, and I go, "Oh, that's Flint." And then the bald guy behind them. Well, that's definitely Gung Ho. But um, you know, I, I, I really want to see these characters in recognizable outfits, even if those outfits need to change either over time for brand reasons or sort of within the story. You know, it's like this wouldn't make any sense if a bunch of Joes go underwater and are wearing scuba gear. But wouldn't it be fun if like Scarlet's scuba gear was a little bit her colors and Gung Ho's scuba gear was a little his colors? And if your response is like, well, that's dumb, it's like... The G.I. Joe's silly. And Dr. Weinbender's a mad scientist with no shirt and a monocle. Like, why not? I feel like they kind of did that sometimes in the cartoon, didn't they? When they would be in different environments, like sometimes their outfits would kind of uh, uh, have their same, their same uh, color scheme. A tiny, a tiny bit. Like, you know, Quick Kick uh, in the Arctic has, in the movie, he has like the, like the snow... Uh, he has like a white jacket, but then he also his red um, throwing star band is yeah. is is over that. That happened a little bit. I, I mean, I'm talking more about the comics, but yes. Yeah. Okay. Another little uh, subtlety on the costume designs was that I noticed that when Kevin Sharp was drawing Storm Shadow, he toned down that design a little bit, so we lost a logo on the chest and forehead as well. So. Oh no. <laughs> oh good so now we won't know what team he's on what do you yeah. guys what do you guys think of the uh firefly redesign don't like it i yeah it's okay i think it's you know it's quite close to the original it's you know hitting the uh the main beats i don't think it's a particular improvement per se but um you know much more to my taste than something green and neon yeah the there's not enough to make it individual, you know, to its, it, it, to me, it looks like someone just drew the V1 wrong. <laughs> um, I'm getting my Dreadnoughts mixed up, but something that I've always liked about Dreadnoughts is that they each have a distinct color, you know, like uh, uh, Monkey yeah. Wrench, Monkey Wrench has that maroon vest and mm-hmm. Ripper in the cartoon, it's yellow. In the toy, it's green. But he has a green shirt, right? And Buzzer has a yellow shirt. And Torch has the black vest, vest, blue pants, right? Like, and then a little bit of red on his um, headband, right? Yeah. So they they each have their own color. And this didn't come up when we were looking at battle files, but it does show up in a couple panels here. Um, is it Ripper and Buzzer are now in yellow? And I don't like that because don't make these two guys look more like each other mm. make them look different from each other and and i think i sort of don't even notice it because on the cover of issue 11 where we see the dreadnoughts it's their 1985 1986 designs and 
you know, Ripper. Well, I guess actually, I guess technically Ripper's sh- shirt on the cover of Eleven is kind of yellow, uh, but it's also covered up by a barcode and a bunch of uh, yeah. weapons. Buzzer um, is completely wrong because he's got like a black vest and like a blonde spiked hairdo i guess is what you'd call it almost like a crew cut yeah. but taller mm-hmm. like a kitten play kind of thing and it just do- totally doesn't look like you know to me what he should look like at all yeah ripper yeah i mean ripper always had the almost like a half shirt with i don't know what it was leopard spots or something crazy on it but um the, the only thing really that stands out to me with with ripper is again how much facial hair they tend to draw him and also how big he is there's several panels in here where he's just enormous um there's a page where the bat is fighting it's a double page spread where the bat's fighting um all of the dreadnoughts and they're all kind of flying all over the place and i don't know i think that's supposed to be torch up in the top corner that's thank you that's what i was talking about right and he's got a yellow shirt but then like i said there's there's buzzer and buzzer's got a black v-neck shirt on and it just yeah you don't you know you don't know who's Who's who? That totally doesn't look like Torch at all. He should have a black vest. If they had just put a black vest on him, there'd be no question. This yeah. isn't. Why, this... Yeah. Why? Why bother changing it if you're going to make well, it yeah. worse? <laughs> yeah. This isn't. This isn't Star Trek. When I look at a photo of all the Star Trek characters, any version, original, next generation, like I expect, it's like okay, Picard and Riker are standing next to each other, and they both have maroon outfits, right? And then like. Jordy and Worf are standing next to each other and they both have beige, right? Like that's different. If you have five dreadnoughts and they all have their own sort of different accent color, don't make two of them redundant. Error detected. Error detected. No prize incoming. I'm gonna gloss over some of uh, some of the more superficial errors, like uh, like speech bubbles pointing at the wrong people, that mm. kind of thing, um, and more sort of character based uh, focus here. Uh, Road Pig says, "You broke Road Pig's hammer. That's not good. Donald will be very angry," um, which makes no sense as well because it's Road Pig is the angry fella, and uh, Donald is the uh, the meek guy who's uh, you know stuttering away in the in the background. So if someone's getting angry. And you're talking about their personalities. Make it be Road Pig and not Donald. Thank you. Yeah, Donald would be like, that's right, I can get a new hammer. Yeah. This one's this one's superficial, but on the cover to twelve, uh, the artists credited are Sharp, Larder, and Brown. But then on the inside front cover, it's Sharp, Larder, and Tony Akins. And Akins is credited with drawing the backgrounds. So Brown, who is an inker on other issues of this story arc, doesn't get credit uh, for this issue. And it always makes me sad when uh, the editor or the designer uh, gets a credit wrong. You know, they, they misattribute the cover to the wrong artist or an inker or someone is left out because, you know, you can fix that in the eventual collection. But the, the issues are forever. But I, I don't have I don't have a fun just, you know, it's like, well, actually, they meant to, you know, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a fun or funny, exp- I don't know, I can't, I can't give that a no prize. <laughs> you That's can't no prize that one. Yes, I can't. <laughs> yeah. The, the, a little thing which maybe errors strong, but it was an annoyance was something that, that Jay had mentioned earlier, which was that I think Road Pig gets a, uh, a knife to his chest somewhat yeah. randomly. 
and the the only explanation would be that that would be thrown by spirit but in the panel preceding that spirit has got two guns dual wielding pistols and shooting so you know just put those down grab a knife you know these these pistols aren't going to do any damage better put those away get a knife out chuck that yeah. pick up my pistols again um yeah more of an annoyance that didn't make any any any, any sense but uh, it's like dead gonna... game where weapons just appear and then disappear. Okay, I think we've we've almost reached <laughs> the the end of this. Uh, was there a f- favorite line of dialogue? Quote of the week. 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 Um, no. This this might be a good way of. <laughs> I, I, I spotted one which might be a good way of just uh, finishing off the show instead. You know, as a new catchphrase and getting rid of the see you down the road stuff. Uh, which was uh, something that Zorana said, which was, see you wankers. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, we've, we've, ex- we've, we've, you know, this is well-trodden ground. I, I am a somewhat immature at times. Um, you know, <laughs> I, and I think, I, 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 I think this, you know, calling someone a, a wanker, spelled W-A-N-K-A here, um, is is very much an english expression is that is it something that you would ever say in in the states only if you were pretending to be british right (laughs) i wouldn't say it that's what i was going to ask is are they are the i don't know the zartan family supposed to be british i haven't read the dreadnoughts declassified i mean no they're just often portrayed particularly in the cartoon with a kind of you know cockney um mary poppins gorblimey kind of accent at times aren't they kind of somewhere between well that's the dreadnoughts and i always uh, thought that was australian yeah australian english kind of amalgamation some some of some of the yeah some of the dreadnoughts are australia and some of them are are uk uh zartan was supposed to be the the english one i mean you know in the show zartan and xandar do not have accents but uh zarana does Mm -hmm. uh hmm yeah where were the parents studied overseas or... well there you know there is the three issue dreadnoughts declassified miniseries which comes later from devil's do which yeah. gets into uh, zartan's backstory which i i i haven't i have not read and i and we'll get to good. it at some point mm, yeah. <laughs> okay well that's what i said i i hadn't read that either so i didn't know whether you know whether that explained the you know where this accent comes from well, yeah, I mean, it does. It sort of is created in retrospect, isn't it? It's not something that exists at this point in in time either. Um, okay, uh, let's. I'm you know somewhat fearful about this, but let's uh, let's do some yo joeage on on this one. I know, I know. Back in the day, it wasn't a particularly well received arc. You know, the 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 as we talked about, it's sort of moving a bit slow to seem seeming to take a little bit longer than perhaps it it needed to. And when you're getting these books monthly and you're you know chomping at the bit to see your your favorite characters make a return and some of the stories you know maybe echoing stories of of your favorite type from back in the in the day you know a when you're treading water or going down an avenue that isn't enjoyable for four months that's a long time to wait for for the you know for the book to turn around and come back to a plot something that you would good enjoy. to happen um Let's see. Um, let's save the best tool last, I think, for, for this one. So so let's you and me go first, Jay. Jay, why don't you start? <laughs> uh, I'm going to use the chief scale that says anything above a five means I didn't regret reading it. 
and um, or that I would possibly read it again. So going with that metric, I'm going to say 4.5. <laughs> it's almost there, but it's not quite. I, I couldn't see going back to this one again. So this is my lowest of the of the devils do so okay. far. I'm not tracking my scores, so so I'm not too sure how this steers against them. But um, I think I'll go five point five. Not not a regretful read. Um, I, I in fact I in, somewhat enjoyed going back to it and seeing uh, seeing it again after such a long long time where my my memory of it was so so fuzzy. I I know that I didn't particularly enjoy this arc at the time, and it seemed to go on forever. Um, it just seems sloppy not, overall. Yeah. So, so not not bad. Not I didn't feel it was necessarily bad per per se um, overall, but but not just just not good. Um, and uh, what I am positive and optimistic about is is that I remember this as being kind of one of the lowest points. So I'm hopeful that actually uh, things will just oh, good. You know, be get, getting better from from this this point onwards. So uh, yeah, there we go. Let's find out what. Tim has to say. Four. Okay. Um, par- parts of this are are three and a half, but <laughs> uh, I think I gave reinstated the first four issues of this series. I think I gave that a four, and some of this is better than that. You know, yeah. Jam- the this gets this gets a lot of points for Jamal Igles' handsome and very capable work in the first chapter. Um, it's exciting that Joe Benitez draws some covers, even if they're not my favorite covers. Um, uh, rather than I've, I've actually never thought of, uh, of a, of a scale as would I read it again? Or do I regret reading it? My scale is, um, I think this is because I've, I've been lending comics to friends for a long time and selling comics. Uh, my scale is. Would I give this comic to someone else to read? And very specifically, like, where in the long list of every G.I. Joe comic ever would this fall as a like representative issue or arc of G.I. Joe to, at minimum, convince someone that G.I. Joe is like, worthy of their time and attention? Because people are like, G.I. Joe, I'm never going to read that. You know, the way that I I would say, like, Buffy yeah. the Vampire Slayer, I hear some of the comics are great. Sorry, I'm never going to read Buffy the Vampire Slayer comics, right? The show doesn't mean anything to me. Like, sorry. Um, and uh, this arc would confuse and turn off anyone who, like, is not familiar with G.I. Joe or isn't familiar with comics or is familiar with G.I. Joe and comics so uh sort of on a bad day i think i might go lower than a four um but uh you know it it does it does move the sort of larger arc along uh you know jugglers and funding and brings a couple of characters back um and you know like the 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 page where um these cobra soldiers fly in on the cobra gliders Mm -hmm. when the joes are parachuting in like uh, and that this is in uh, issue twelve. Um, there's a there's a two page scene. Uh, it's dumb because Roadblock and Spirit are just like yelling to each other while they're falling, while they're free falling. Right? It's like they're parachuting into uh, Chicago, 
and they're just like yelling across the distance to each other. But like, sorry, I can't hear you because like wind is rushing past me. Um, and then they see some Cobra gliders and that's exciting. And uh, the scene visually does not work in terms of Jinx unlatching herself or Jinx lands on a glider and unlatches the Cobra and he falls and then she gets his glider. Like there are five panels that try to visually explain that and they do not. It's like, I don't, there isn't enough visual mm. information visually drawn. Sorry. I, I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, sharp having the camera in too close. A lot of times imagine if that scene had been pulled back a little bit, we could have seen the entire glider. We could have seen Jinx drop down on top of it. Um, there's better ways you could have shown that happening and, and than a bunch of close-ups. Sometimes you need not just to pull the camera back. Sometimes you need a second panel. Sometimes you need a before and after. I need a panel of the yeah. Cobra guy in the glider, and then I need a panel of him like falling out of the glider. And those can be from the same angle, but in like exciting super inside uh, exciting action comics, there's this tendency to not want to sort of draw the same image a second time and to swing the camera around to something uh, more exciting. So I appreciate the attempt at this scene that it's like a different kind of choreography. You know, they're falling and they're the gliders, and then this Cobra guy falls, um, but it falls short. <laughs> and ultimately, it was unnecessary. Uh, yeah, it does seem a little toyetic. It does seem like I, I know that I know this didn't happen, but it feels like oh, we got to sell this glider toy. Make sure yeah. we, we get it mm. in there. And what what frustrated me somewhat about that scene is that it feels like people who are free falling, who jumped out of a plane, are traveling at a very different speed to people who are on a glider. Um, so just the choreography of how that would actually work in reality didn't necessarily ring true to, to me but uh yeah I, is... you know forgave it it's it's comics you know well but this is this is where i'll pick on blaylock because um you know it's like you you don't have to write what you know that's a good place to start but this adage of write what you know if that if everyone followed it we'd we'd never have stories about like serial killers right because like there's no author that's already a serial killer and <laughs> a lot of really amazing stories wouldn't happen uh, and, you know, fake it till you make it is real. At the same time, expertise and research go a long way. And if you've never jumped out of a plane or like read about it or, I don't know, watched a documentary um, and you write a scene where some guys jump out of a plane, you might get it wrong. And uh, what I'm I'm OK with with um, unrealistic things in G.I. Joe comics Um what I'm less okay with is inconsistency. Like I want to stay in the story. Please don't sus uh, please don't break my suspension of disbelief. I know. Let's talk toys. J J J J J J J J J J J J J J J with a toy Nophia. Talking G.I. Joe collectibles. It's a favorite figure. Let's pull the trigger. Three and three quarter inch or bigger. J J J J J J J J J J J. Alrighty, today we're talking about Roadblock. Roadblock was first released as an action figure in 1984. He made his first appearance in GI Joe: A Real American Hero alongside Duke in number 22. From his original 1984 file card. 
Roadblock is the G.I. Joe team's heavy machine gunner. File name Marvin F. Hinton. Primary military specialty, infantry heavy weapons. Secondary military specialty, cook. Birthplace, Biloxi, Mississippi. Grade E4. Roadblock's dream was to be a gourmet chef. He was working as a bouncer to earn money to attend the Escoffier School in France when an army recruiter convinced him that the army could train him to be a chef. Roadblock joined but found army menus and preparation techniques appalling. Transferred to the infantry. Qualified expert M2 Browning 50 caliber heavy machine gun. All Warsaw packed heavy machine guns. M16, M1911A1 auto pistol. Now if I'm not mistaken, all of the quotes on the bottom of the Joe's file cars were supposed to be taken from Hawk or from other Joes. And I think I read somewhere that the quote on Roadblock's file card was from Rock and Roll, which would make sense as he was also a machine gunner. Uh, it says, A 50 caliber Browning weighs 84 pounds. Add 50 pounds for the ammo. That's about 134 pounds of steel, generating 2,930 FPS in muzzle velocity at a cyclic rate of 550 RPM. Anybody who can handle that doesn't need a machine gun to keep me away. The original Roadblock figure wore orangish-brown pants, with a similarly colored camo tank top. He had gray gloves, boots, or black boots, and suspenders. He came with a green um, 50 caliber machine gun, a tripod, a backpack with removable ammunition box, and a green helmet. Now, despite being pictured as very muscled on the package art, and in the Marvel comic and Sunbow cartoon, the original Roadblock's arms were about the same size as every other Joe figure. The Roadblock was an immediate fan favorite upon release, and like Duke, he's been featured in just about every incarnation of G.I. Joe across multiple medias. He was even portrayed by The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, in the 2013 film G.I. Joe Retaliation. Although many fans, myself included, feel The Rock's character in the film bore little resemblance to our favorite gumbo-cooking, rhyme-talking heavy machine gunner. Now in 1986, the character got a second figure release. Uh, this one sported a bulkier frame that was more in line with his appearance in the comics and cartoons. The 1986 version of the figure had gray pants, black gloves, and a white t-shirt underneath a neon green vest. Like the first version of the figure, he came with a heavy machine gun and a tripod. This one was listed on the packaging as an L7A21 GM GPMG heavy machine gun. Um, and honestly, this gun to me looks like it's out of scale with the figure, something that the ARH line would kind of become notorious for in later years. Now, the classified Roadblock figure, which was released in 2020, most closely resembles this version of the version 2 you know, character. He's big and bulky, like that figure, and really a second only in height to Gung Ho, which I kind of thought was weird. I, I would have gone with making Roadblock the taller of the, the figures. Now, unlike the 90 or the 86 figure, the classified Roadblock has dark green, plant, dark green pants, uh, whereas the 86 figure had gray pants. They both have a neon green vest. Um, but the classified is a little less neon. Now, the vests are very similar in design, and this was kind of surprising to me. Uh, they both have three red padded clasps down the middle, a red shoulder pad over the left arm, and a knife on the right side. Now, like several of the other classified figures on Roadblock, that knife is removable. But honestly, it's a little awkward, because when it's in its sheath, it kind of sticks out from his chest. And I feel like it would have been better if they would have put that maybe on one of his legs. There's other noticeable differences between the two figures. The 86 version, of course, had a white t-shirt under the vest. The classified one doesn't. Uh, the classified figure has a large tattoo of a lion's head on his left arm, which is kind of cool. Obviously, the 86 version didn't. Um, and like most of the other first wave from the classified line, the 2020 Roadblock sports gold trim. 
on his shin guards, uh, one gold knee pad, and gold accents on his vest. Now, there was a repainted figure, a figure of this version of this figure released recently that had all the gold accents replaced with black. I didn't get that one because, judging from the pictures, I just felt that the black in place of gold made the figure look a little too dark. Now, we can't talk about the classified roadblock without mentioning his weapon as much as I might like to. Uh, when he was first introduced, a big part of Roadblock's appeal was that he was this big, strong guy who carried around a weapon that was generally mounted on something. Uh, as the file card states, an M250 caliber Browning weighs 84 pounds just by itself. So Roadblock was always the big guy with the big gun. And when they designed this figure, I, I don't know what they were thinking. I, I really don't. Uh, to me, Roadblock's weapon is probably the worst accessory in the entire classified line. It's just this big silver blocky looking thing that more closely resembles an electric toothbrush than an actual weapon. And I really don't understand why they did this either. Uh, in the very same year that we got classified roadblock, Hasbro also released the retro packaging line, which features previously released modern construction figures on the classic Hector Greedo painted blister cards. Now included in that line was a great roadblock figure that came with two weapons. Uh, an M249 light machine gun, also known as the Saw Rifle, uh, which is what the Saw Viper carried, and a 50 caliber Browning. So I'm like, why, you know, if they can include two great real-world weapons with that figure in the same year, why didn't they just give the classified one the same guns, just scaled up? Um, and, and, you know, they, they kind of did that across all of them. Mark sent me a picture this week of some of the classified weapons in comparison with actual nerf weapons because we hear fans talk about them a lot and calling them nerf weapons and, and the, the similarities are uncanny between the two. I, I just don't know why they get it uh, or why they did that. The only one really, and maybe they're getting better with this because like Flint comes with an actual shotgun. Lady J has like a spear gun or a javelin launcher or something that looks very much like her original figure came with uh but in the very first line they just went off the wall with these weapons and it doesn't make sense to me because the the promo snake eyes had like an actual uzi and maybe a, a mac 10 or two mac 10s i'm not sure but then for that first line right out of the bank right out of the gate and roadblock is figure number one why are you going to put this idiot looking thing with him you know to start your line i just i don't get it overall the figure's good um you know, the, the, the gun just doesn't do it for me. I've actually tried a couple different guns for replacements. I bought a 50 caliber replica uh, off somebody on Etsy. Uh, unfortunately, it was 3D printed and was very fragile, and I broke it almost right out of the box. Um, I do have a saw rifle that came from uh, a set that Bobby Valve released in his Action Force accessories, and I've got that with my roadblock right now. But it just looks kind of too small. I mean, you do need a, a bigger gun for this character. I don't know why they didn't didn't give him a real one. I don't know. Overall, would I recommend the figure? Yeah, I would. And I would say if you can, find the one with the gold accents. The, the repaint with the black shin guards and the, the gold taken off, to me, looked a lot like... Uh, it was just like I said, it was too dark. Mm. Okay. Very good. Um, the the roadblock, yeah, is is a character is, is interesting, particularly just from that that V two design. Um, 
being a rare instance where where possibly an update to the to the outfit seeming to be the more um, iconic version and the, the one that maybe possibly an improvement um certainly no, i would have no. rather seen them go with the the version one really for the classified okay. figure but yeah interesting they went they went with the version two for the for the classified and um yeah i think it's it's often the version of roadblock that people will will think of i guess it's the version of the the character that appeared in gi joe's uh, the movie as as well which wouldn't uh wouldn't harm people's uh memories of uh of the characters uh but yeah, I just want to I just want to point out the joke in Roadblock's original dossier, oh. which is he found the menus and food prep in the army so egregious that he transferred to infantry. Right. So the joke here is that infantry isn't as bad as <laughs> making all this terrible food in this terrible way. Like he's so offended by the processes mm-hmm of cooking in the army that he transfers to the infantry. I kind of took it as he just gave up. He's like this. They're not going to teach me what I need to know about cooking. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go shoot people. <laughs> do you, uh, do you know offhand who draws the art for the roadblock classified package? Cause I know it's a different artist for each. Oh, no, I no idea. Package. Um, uh, I think it... Which is something that I, something that I really like about the, the it's more of that kind of generic kind of, toy uh i don't think it's i don't think it's someone so notably a comics artist did you guys get the roadblock figure tim or uh mark i know that tim didn't oh yeah i've got i've got it yeah although the thomas is do you have the original one or the repainted one the the original i've not gone for any of the uh the repaints what do you think about it you like it i like it yeah yeah i think it's uh yeah i think it's a good one i was like you i was tempted to try and track down uh an alternative uh weapon for for him but um yeah not not to the degree of actually going ahead and and doing it i noticed that there was some quite quite high-end kind of um um like browning pieces that that are made by alter you know other toy companies that are kind of available from i think japan but yeah to spend something like 20 pounds to to get an an extra weapon seemed like like it was a bit ott if it if it was going to cost the same or more than the actual figure yeah, itself the same as the actual figure yeah and it's a shame i don't know you know one of the big appeals of the original line was that they were realistic you know they had realistic weapons they're the at least in the first two or three years the figures all looked really realistic look at snow job look at uh torpedo uh, doc they, they were perfect and and their weapons were real world weapons and i think that that lended a lot of the appeal to the figures and to the line in general mm. and with this i just I, it's a head scratcher i don't know why <laughs> what this thing is supposed to be uh, i'm hoping that they'll 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 do another redo i like i said I'm, i i'd love to see a v1 with the with the 50 cal in in this scale mm. that's that would be what i would like to see good okay uh oh, I, f- I found the i found the the thing for now so the artist of the roadblock piece was mike thompson mm. thank you for that fact check because <laughs> <laughs> i j- while you guys have been talking i've been googling it and i couldn't find it and yeah, the artist some... who i thought it was it wasn't so i'll, uh, I'll ping the uh, i'll ping the link 
Yeah, what do you think, Mark, about the the knife in his chest? You know, seems... I, I agree. It's a nice. It's nice that they've tried to replicate what's happening with the the, the original V two figure. But as you say, it, it just doesn't, sticks out doesn't quite sit much. right. It kind of seems to be uh-uh. sitting away from his his body. Okay, and it wouldn't have been any trouble to put a no. sheath on his leg. Mm, yeah, yeah. I guess you know they were they, obviously what they were going for was to try and replicate the uh, the original look, but but they didn't quite. Yeah, uh, well, they could have done that with a real gun. very good okay so more toy talk when we catch up with jay next time um let's move on to everybody's favorite part of the show i know that tim uh, was you know dying to get on to to the next thing in his in his day but was desperately hanging on to this because he wouldn't want to miss his favorite part of the show which is (laughs) innuendo Attention, at this moment you are now listening to a Talking innuendo If you are offended by words like Sucking Flesh wound Willy Pete Balls Crystal balls Hypno shield Whatever Take the tape out now This is not a pop album And by the way Suck my Grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag So if you remember, if you're of the right frame of mind, uh, a lot of G.I. Joe names can sound a little bit dirty. And so the challenge is, can uh, the guys sit through a list of 10 uh, G.I. Joe names being read out by myself without eliciting some sort of titter, giggle or guffaw? Um, let me just check my other screen that uh, we don't have anyone unmuted. And can we just for clarity have a check in <laughs> from both of the guys? Tim, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay, I'm ready right. to not laugh. Okay, excellent. Okay, so let's go. Um, I'm just going to start with this one is, a, is an intro, just with a, a thought as to, to how might you just describe going for a, for a whiz after eating some chili nachos without washing your hands first. Okay, just keep that in mind. Number one, firefly, bullhorn, scoop. Hot seat. Hit and run. Hard top. Sneak peek. Crockmaster. Said crock. Dominator. Hardball. Nothing. Ugh. I will. No, I will say very good, Mark, because I. I started I started with a small smile and by the third one I had a big smile and by the fourth one I had a very big smile and I enjoyed the effort and I was sort of trying to keep myself from laughing. Oh, you and me both. I almost lost it at Firefly but I thought no, he's not going to win this time. I'm like I have to do this for Tim. I got to keep a straight face. I feel like we're disappointing our listeners. You know, this is like when you watch a game show and the person can win a million dollars and they walk away with $9,000 and then the episode's over. Okay, let's gamble. Let's double down on this one, okay? One bonus one, double down, okay? (laughs) Wait, what do I get if I don't laugh? What do I get? You get double extra not laughings, okay? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Okay, let's settle down. I I don't want to cheat here. Mm-hmm. But you will. 
I'll, I'll, <laughs> I, have a, I, have a, I have a straight face and I've taken a sip of water. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully a mouthful of water so that out the nose it goes. <laughs> All over the mic. Okay, here we go. Extra bonus, innuendo. Hooded Cobra Commander. <laughs> Very good, Mark. You gambled it and lost. <laughs> um, I'm glad. I'm glad we could give our listeners something to. Oh dear. I'm glad. I'm glad someone. I'm glad our contestant walked away with, with a million bucks at the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So that's that. That is the uh, the end of it. So next time. On Talking Joe, uh, in addition to any sketchbook specials that we'll be dropping onto the YouTubes, so watch out for those. But next time on Talking Joe podcast proper, we will be talking a real American hero 279. So this is Untold Tales Part 4. Cobra has plans to unleash hellacious havoc from the Terrodrome. So it's up to Ace, Slipstream, and the other Joe Air Warriors to unleash unleash justice from the skies and stop the imminent destruction from the drone before it is too late <laughs> we've got larry hammer assisted by artist alex sanchez and we're all really looking forward to this issue because uh it's been more than a month mm. since the last issue and uh, I, I think this is some late covid related shipping or or like production delays so Joe fans are really, I'd like to thank Ansi for this issue because we got the cover tease like yeah. six months, six months ago. It's a crazy amount of time ago. Yeah, it was a long That's time. That's a great looking cover too. And and I think we might be, you know, if if the shipping continues per schedule, we might be in for a treat. We might have our, our fortnightly ARAR fix for, for a couple of months. So fingers crossed. Um, We'll we'll see, but uh, I think IDW, IDW's got to make up uh, make up some cash flow losses with some of these production delays by by getting in all the all the issues that they would have had in the year, which mm. as a reader makes me very happy because if this book is weekly, oh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we'll be back here in a fortnight's time for Disavowed, where we'll be covering issues. 14 to 16 so we've got the uh two-part homecoming and a one-parter the family and we might be uh we might be breaking that up into two parts so yeah wait and see but if you want to be sure uh, that is the homework um you can find us in all of the usual places the talkingjoe.co.uk website has all of those places the facebook page the twitter the instagram the email address and also the link to patreon so big thanks to all of our backers richard sam and jay who are getting early access to the episodes as well as extra exclusive content Ooh. uh guys let remind me where can people find you should they so wish to i'm at uh Facebook, a real American book, and Instagram, a real American book, but best of all, a real American book.com. Mm. And GIJ, if, if people want to find pictures of Zorana and maybe up to the minute drawings of movie accurate Scarlet, where should they go? Break Room Sketches on Facebook. That's the place. Uh, and so. 
when all is said and done, you can catch us down the road. See ya, wankers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did we, did we not decide? <laughs> um, you screwed it all up, Tim. Because we've been talking Joe. And we're all out of Joes. That's when we say, see ya, wankers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just too early. Uh, laters. Bling, <laughs>